Welcome to Madison Book Club. I'm your host, David Ahrens. Today, I'm pleased to have as our guest, John Shelton, author of The Education Myth, How Human Capital Trumped Social Democracy. John Shelton is an associate professor of democracy and social justice studies at UW-Green Bay. He is also the author of Teacher's Strike, and there's an exclamation point at the end of that phrase. Uh, John is also the vice president of higher education of Wisconsin's American Federation of Teachers. Let's just uh, get right to the question. Why did a college professor write a book titled The Education Myth? Yeah, well, uh, first of all, thanks so much for having me, David. It's it's really a, a privilege to be here. You know, uh, I wrote this book really for a couple of reasons. And the first thing I want to say at the outset is I'm not anti-education, right? I mean, the, the education myth really is about uh, the way we've mythologized a certain version of education, right? Which is individual investment in human capital as kind of the solution to all of our social and economic inequalities in this country. Uh, but I wrote this book for two reasons. Um, I started thinking about it actually at the, you know, at the end of, uh, you know, when the, the, the work that I was doing for my book, Teacher Strike, which came out in 2017. And, um, I, you know, I, I came to Wisconsin in, in 2013, just a few years before that. And as I started talking to more of our undergrads here at, at UW-Green Bay, you know, which are these are working class families. Many of them, they come, you know, these students come from working class families. Uh, many of them are the first in their generation in their family to go to college. Uh, many of them are, you know, uh, coming from economically marginal families. And it struck me that there was a real kind of disconnect between, you know, what uh, they thought education could do for them and, and why they were in college. And it was a level of kind of like resignation for a lot of them, right? Not that they didn't think what we were doing were important was important, right? And, and of course, uh, you know, I, I think in the UW system, we do a really great job of exposing students to different ideas. And, and, and you know, almost all of them come out as different people than when they started, right? Like mm -hmm. much, much, you know, uh, much better critical thinkers and systematic thinkers. But, you know, many of our students came in because they thought college was going to be this um, you know, path to getting them a good job, but they also knew there were no guarantees, right? I mean, the economy over the past 10 years, I don't need to tell any of your listeners, is deeply unequal, uh, especially for young people. And so there was a sense of like, all right, we have to do this because this is kind of our only shot. But even then, you know, there's still a good chance, uh, you know, like say an older sibling or something who got a college degree that we're going to be a barista at Starbucks, you know, or, or we're going to be working at a job that essentially doesn't require a college degree, mm -hmm. which is not to denigrate, you know, um, uh, people who work at Starbucks, right? I mean, they're at a, mm -hmm. at a, at a very important unionization drive at the moment. But I, I just I felt like someone needed to kind of talk about how our education system and these sort of promises, this notion of meritocracy had let our students down. And then the second thing that happened is 2016 with the election of Trump. And, you know, uh, probably like a lot of people listening to this, you know, I was very curious to, to try and figure out what happened to our political system. And, you know, one of the big data points that I saw was the, the huge um, division between people with college degrees who voted for Hillary Clinton and the people without college degrees who voted for Donald Trump. And I said, there, you know, there, there really has to be something here that needs to be examined. 
And, you know, so as I started looking at the evidence, um, you know, beginning in 2017, 2018, uh, I, I really saw that the way Americans think about public education and what it can do has changed extensively uh, over time, uh, you know, starting with the nation's found, get into that more if you want. Uh, but but things changed a lot, and that had that's had a, had a huge impact on where our politics. Have been. So looking at a hundred years ago, I think the, the the statistic that you have is something like one third of adults were then finishing high school. I mean that was sort of it for the population in a very small percentage in college. Weren't those people in high school at the time for the purpose uh, almost exclusively, except for those who were sort of college bound? Weren't they in high school for the purpose of developing technical skills that, based on a meritocracy, they would then be able to find positions consistent with their new skill level? So I think some of them, some of them were right. I mean, it's it's hard, and you know, I don't I don't kind of get down into the into the fine grain analysis of like why every single you know every single person went to the 19th century. I think some of them were right. I mean, clearly, you know, there were people, especially when you get to Really, I, I think it, it becomes more salient in the early 20th century, the, the expansion of high school, right? Uh, you know, for, for, for many working people, it is seen as a path, um, you know, and, and there's a great book by uh, Christina Groger uh, kind of talks about this. Um, you know, it, it is seen as a, a, as a path to more economic opportunity for, you know, some, some working people. But I think what I would say about that is, you know, number one, um, and we do actually just very quickly need to kind of go back to the mm -hmm. nation's founding and look at the first hundred years uh, of, uh, you know, folks advocating for public education. Really, we're advocating it for a lot of other reasons other than, hey, this is how you're going to get it. They were advocating, right? They were advocating for democracy and melting and, pot. Yeah. In some cases, like Horace Mann's social control. But the, but the big thing I would say is that most working people, even though some of those folks who are going to high school were saying, yeah, like this is this is something that we're going to do because it will give us new skills to get a say a middle class job, right? Mm -hmm. Most people were not middle class uh, in in that time, and the and the primary way that folks who were working people in this industrial era were pushing for um, more economic opportunities, not even really the right word. It's really economic security. Uh, is they were they were forming unions and they were pushing for um, social and economic reforms like minimum wage laws, maximum hour laws, child labor laws, right? Mm -hmm. All of these things that, that would that would actually make their their work lives better. Um, and so I think that's you you do have more people who are who are going to high school for that reason, but at the same time the I would say the more dominant thing that people were pushing for were these other kind of economic and social reforms. And that's a very different story than kind of how we, we think about those those um, you know that problem. Do you think people then were going to school to push for a social democratic uh, agenda or they wanted the results of a social democratic agenda what i would say is yeah i mean i think that's a that's a that's a strand uh, of of why working people were pushing for schools as early as the 1830s i mean the public schools in places like new york and pennsylvania were developed because working people were really saying like you know, we want to we want to train new generations of, of people to understand how to organize and advocate for themselves and, and develop a, a democracy. Uh, but but I wouldn't say that was probably the dominant reason that um, you know 
a lot of Americans were choosing to go to high school again in this in this era in which most Americans didn't go to high school. You know, I think there there are those movements. I mean, you have uh, progressive uh, intellectuals, people like um, John Dewey, and actually the first teacher union leader, Margaret Haley, about in the book, who were saying, no, this is why we need to expand education, but it needs to be a certain type of education where you know future generations of uh, students are learning how to, you know, become empowered and organized. And, you know, you, you have things like, it, listeners will know about this, right, uh, in, in higher ed, things like the School for Workers and, you know, uh, in it's, you know UW, the UW system kind of pioneers that sure. uh, in the 1920s that are active, that are, you know, sort of actively pushing for, for that kind of thing. You know, I, I do think that, you know, one of the things that is happening is, you know, you do have people in, you know, education administrators and, and some working people in the, you know, 10, teens, 20s and 30s that are saying, like, let's go to high school in order to uh, get our kids into the middle class. That's definitely happening. But I but I, I guess what I'm saying is that there's this there's the, the more dominant push is for these other economic and social. Could you uh, talk a bit about what's the meaning of human capital and where did that come from? I think a lot of people may not be. Um, uh, have an understanding of it. People hear all the time about the the Human Resources Department, which I guess uh, has files of human capital. But what the meaning of that is, and and how it really took hold of educational thinking and how we think about labor markets. That's a that's a great question. Economists had sort of been at least conceptually. Uh, uh, kind of employing the the idea of human capital, you know, as as early as like the 1930s, uh, but it, but it's really in the in the 1950s and early 60s uh, that you have a group of economists at the University of Chicago School, um, some of whom are you know libertarian types like Gary Becker and Milton Friedman, others who are really more kind of neo Keynesians like Theodore Schultz, who you know really kind of popularized this term. And it's fascinating because um, in one of the early versions of Gary Becker's work uh, on human capital, he he even kind of says uh, it's difficult to use the word human capital because the way it's historically been used in the United States uh, is to is to apply to enslaved people. I mean, he actually says this, right? It's like in the 19th century, uh, enslaved people were literal human capital. capital they, sure, they yeah. could be used as, as they were priced uh, at an auction. It was a it was a free and fair market, right? Could use, they, they could be used as collateral. So Becker's like, hey, we've got to kind of rehabilitate this. And, and what the term really means is it, it treats workers as individual like entrepreneurs. And it's it's deeply problematic because it, it actually covers up the actual relationship that happens in a capitalist system. Whether you are pro-capitalist or not, workers are not capital they're labor right i mean they're uh, you know the, the the people who own capital they employ workers uh you know to to build a product they create capital. capital uh and then they take a cut those workers are producing but what these human capital folks did is they completely transformed the way that that relationship was uh was characterized right and said okay if you're a worker you're no longer selling your labor you're an entrepreneur and if you can add to your own capital your own like set of skills that will allow you to turn a bigger profit by selling by selling your labor, and right? the profit will be shared equally with you as a as a laborer. The, that's kind of the <laughs> idea there, right? Becker gives this famous address. Sorry, not Becker. Uh, Schultz gives this in 1960 as the president of the American uh, Economics Association, and he says, and he looks around, and he says, 
look at how much our economy is, has, has prospered and, and workers are becoming uh, more, you know, we've got less inequality. Workers are doing pretty well. For, you know, he, he says this is because uh, workers are getting the skills that they need to sell their labor. Nothing, nothing to do with labor. Use. I mean, his, he, he was in part correct that this was he was looking at the period of the greatest equality, income inequality, income equality in the nation's history at that point. And it was, as you say, it was also the maximum point of uh, of unionization. Exactly right, mm -hmm. but they but they draw the wrong conclusions from this, right? And they and they and and they and they point to education and skills, which on some level makes sense. Workers were getting more education, right? I mean, many of our public higher education systems were were built very robustly in the fifties and sixties. Mm -hmm. Post war GI Bill stuff, yeah. Exactly, yeah. Mm -hmm. So so it made some sense. But what happens is they ignore all of these other things, and then um, that idea of sort of human capital really starts to grow in political circles, right? And and the Johnson administration, many folks in the Johnson administration just kind of pick that up. And, you know, I, I argue that, you know, we think about the Great Society, many of us, as this period of really important reforms, and there were some great things that came out of the Great Society, Medicare and Medicaid, for example. But a, but a big part of the, the Great Society under the Johnson administration employed these human capital ideas to say, all right, the way we're going to solve poverty is not to focus on why there are no jobs in American cities and, and, and black people are so poor. We're going to give them the skills they need to overcome their deficiencies. And it fit pretty seamlessly with this human capital concept. You mentioned just one of the quotes that you have in the book or, or descriptions of programs from uh, the Johnson war and poverty period is, is Richard Cloward. And... Um, he actually um, started a program called JOIN, which is Jobs or Income Now. It was really one of the first efforts at establishing a guaranteed income. And, you know, another aspect of that, he and Francis Fox Piven, uh, his wife, started the National Welfare Rights Organization, which um, uh, almost led Richard Nixon into having a guaranteed uh, national income, but we didn't, we didn't get that far. I mean, the 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 explanation that you give of of this human capital thing is to me it was a classic case of why people shouldn't pay any attention to economists. I mean, they uh, have uh, graphs and regression equations and so on, but they exhibit zero knowledge of actually how the world. Actually works. I mean, the um, this notion that Becker talks about is that someone will have this skill, and that and that in all cases, if someone has skill X Y B, and an employer needs X Y B, they'll definitely match, and the only interest of the employer and the employee is that. They both have this XYB sort of skill chromosome, and it leaves out all of the other real-world stuff. You mentioned the fact that an employer may be racist, an employer may be yeah. sexist, yeah. or that neither of them have any information that the other person exists. The U.S. may be the only industrialized country that has no real labor market training activity going on. If there's 20,000 people who are unemployed in the Bay Area, there's no real national mechanism to connect those people, 
give them unemployment in a meaningful way. There used to be a program called the Trade Adjustment uh, something, something. Really, it was for people who are lost their jobs due to NAFTA. There was an effort to really give them, you know, six months or a year of uh, a year of training and, you know, a year of unemployment. We don't really do that on any kind of consistent basis in this country. So we just sort of let people out there, out to dry, um, and hope the best that they somehow click. With it, are we the only country that? I mean, every other country I hear, you know, uh, certainly Scandinavian countries, but also France and England. Certainly, Germany does it. And here we seem to be going back in the opposite direction, where the state is attempting to roll back unemployment and to really penalize people who um, who are unemployed. Yeah. So I, I can't speak to whether we're the only country that doesn't do something like that. I, I'm, I'm familiar with a lot of the other countries you're talking about and, and the kinds of programs they have. But here's what I would say. I mean, that like I don't think that 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 thing that you're mentioning about the you know unemployed uh, software programmers Bay Area, you know, the, these things are not um, these are features, not bugs. Right. Like this. This is by design when you have a country in which the corporate corporations have become so powerful that they effectively dictate all of the social and economic policy, right? So like all those other countries that you're talking about, those they're not perfect, of course, but many of them have a, a premise when they, that, you know, when people are, are making laws and creating social policies that privilege the economic and social livelihoods of working people above other interests or at least equal to others, right? And so when you think those those software uh, designers who are who are out of work, you know, the, the, the tech industry in this country for years has been trying to suppress the wages of software workers, right? But in all kinds of ways, obviously, like investing in engineering programs, how much do we hear about this in Wisconsin? We've got engineering, engineering, engineering. Right now, there's this whole push to get a new engineering center at uh, Madison, right? That's the big thing that the UW system has been asking for in the capital budget. The, the H-1B visa, right, which is something that's specifically designed for high-tech workers, these are things that you know uh, tech companies have been lobbying for for years, and it's and it's you know so that they can have a fungible labor force, right? That they can they can bring on when they need to, but the second that you know profits go down a little bit, they can immediately flood the the market again with a bunch of unemployed folks. So, so I think that's kind of what I'm saying. Big picture in this book is like where the United States has really gone wrong is you know starting in the 1960s, but certainly beyond, ignoring all of these alternative. Um, proposals to center the economic and social needs of working people. You know, you, you mentioned Cloward. That's that's one of them. Uh, I talk about in the book Bayard Rustin and A. Philip Rand, but Humphrey Hawkins in the 1970s, which, you know, these programs... What, what was, talk a bit about Humphrey Hawkins. Starting from Franklin Roosevelt through Humphrey Hawkins, it was a central part of critic thinking at the time. That one of the things that government can do is effectively guarantee jobs for anybody who wants one right and and when you think about things like trade adjustment and all these things you don't you don't need those kind of programs if you center the idea that hey everybody is going to have a job and we're going to make that a priority so you can trace this all the way back to the 1930s in the 1930s one of the key things that we don't talk about enough with the FDR administration the new deal there's there there's the, there's, there's the things that we all remember the National Labor Relations Act Social Security 
but the Works Progress Administration put millions of people to work, just directly employed them, and probably cut the unemployment rate in half. We don't think about this of the New Deal. And then when FDR in 1944 pushes for an economic bill of rights, the first of those rights, he says, hey, you know, we've got a very different society than we did in the 1780s you know, when the Bill of Rights was constructed. People need social people need effectively economic rights in order to like be able to thrive in our in our world that's industrial and most people are engaging in wage labor. The first of those rights is the right to a job. It's the very first right. Um, and and so that's a that's a, that was a key premise of Democratic Party politics in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, and key premise of the the Freedom Budget, and then Humphrey Hawkins, right in in 1976. I, I, at some point, I might write a, another book about Humphrey Hawkins and and the, and the failure there to uh, to seize the opportunity to create the kind of multiracial democracy that we all deserve in this country. The Humphrey Hawkins was the brainchild of uh, Senator um, Hubert Humphrey from Minnesota. And uh, Augustus Hawkins, who we don't talk enough about, he was he represented Watts in California. He was in the House and had been in the House for years, uh, played a major role in drafting the section on uh, unemployment in the um, Civil Rights Act, 1864, and was was a co-founder of the Congressional Black Caucus. And so Humphrey and Hawkins said in the context of the economic turmoil of the 70s, let's create a bill in which everybody is effectively guaranteed a job. And, uh, you know, they, they, the, the, the first version of it was quite robust and uh, had a lot of grassroots support. Coretta Scott King, Martin's widow, was, was uh, leading the charge for this in 76, 77. And there's this, there's this really important moment because this is the, sort of the moment when the Democratic Party in particular really starts to shift away from its social democratic roots. Carter gets the nomination on the campaign trail kind of says, yeah, I support the idea of, of Humphrey Hawkins. Once he gets in office, though, he says, no, like, we're not doing that. We need to lower our expectations. He, he like, literally says this. We need to lower our expectations about what government can do, uh, even though, you know, uh, the right to a job was polling at huge numbers in the mid-1970s. The Democratic Party platform in 1976 really centers the right to a job. Read it sometime. It's relating. Carter moves in a very different direction. And, you know, I think for a lot, the election of 1980 is complicated, but one of the reasons that we get Reagan is frankly because so many American working people were like, what are the Democrats doing for us? Carter's doing nothing. And they're like, hey, this guy's promising things are going to be good again. Carter's telling us to lower our expectations. So lots of working people either sat out that election or voted for Reagan. Yeah, Carter did have, um, I remember, the Comprehensive Employment Training Act. But, but even CETA, that predated Carter, actually. That created mm-hmm. in 73, 74. Nixon actually signed that into the first version into law because unemployment was going up and there was a push to, to do something about that in Congress. So with, with Carter, um, reauthorizing CETA was kind of like a, it was like a compromise solution for him, right? Like, I'm not going to do Humphrey Hawkins, but hopefully this will placate people. And the problem with CETA, and I don't know exactly what your experience was in is that in, in contrast to something like Humphrey Hawkins, which would have, the original version would have made it a literal right. Uh, you could sue the government to get a job under under Hawkins' initial plan. Um, is that CETA, you know, promised these public sector jobs, but what a lot of cities did in the 70s because they were facing fiscal crises is they basically just used that money to backfill jobs that they, they would have paid for anyway. It didn't actually create all that many jobs. It created some. 
Uh, but yeah, it was really sort of a compromise under under Carter. So let's don't let's don't give him. him <laughs> well, undo credit. Let me just interrupt here and say that uh, this is Madison Bookbeat. Uh, I'm David Aaron's, and we're uh, talking with John Shelton, who's the author of the myth, the education myth, how human capital trumped social democracy, and it's really a study of sort of the twists and turns of how we got to the education and employment policies. One of the interesting parts of the book are to how the blame game uh, transitioned uh, over time. You know, we we began with, um, I think one of the, one of them starting from sort of the period that I'm familiar with, is the uh, the the craze about Sputnik uh, that hit the nation in 1959 um, that the Russians are fantastic there and Americans are adults and I don't know if you ever heard it. there was a there was a bestseller at the time called uh, Why Ivan Can Read and Johnny Can't and of course it was an attack on education so it was the inability to compete uh, internationally. Um, and that the educational system had the wrong orientation, and it was the first real blast of STEM. Then we got schools on an individual basis or, or the problem, and we got to, and the answer is charter schools, of course, that that would address that. Um, and then then it shifted to teachers <laughs> are the problem. And I think now we're sort of in the area of students are the problem. <laughs> They're just incapable of learning uh, and well, teacher, so, teachers are still a problem. They're still a problem. That's they're, true. They're, indo- they're indoctrinating <laughs> these students with critical race. That's true. Right. Yeah. Instead of teaching Johnny, I guess Johnny's right. still around. Instead of teaching him how to read, they're instead indoctrinating him, uh, le- learning about queer people and, you know, CRT. Did this begin with A Nation at Risk, sort of the big book, uh, and how, how it came about and, and what the implications of it were? Yeah. So, so first of all, a nation at risk doesn't come out of nowhere. It's important to recognize that, right? Like you, you drew that line all the way back to, to Sputnik and, you know, this, the National Defense Education Act, which came out of uh, Sputnik. But, but, but what's interesting about that is that even, even back in the 1950s, you're right, there was this push for STEM education, but it still came in this Cold War context of like, part of this competition is about a global competition for democracy, right? So you've got George McGovern, you know, talking about the NDA and he's saying like, yeah, the, the, the science stuff is important, but so is citizenship. And this is why we you know, have to invest in our schools. Right. And that comes on the heels of this call for from the Truman Commission in the late 40s, you know, for higher education to be at the forefront of like cultivating American democracy in this global context. So when you get to 1983, when a nation at risk, it's uh, put out. Right. It comes on the heels of, yeah, like 30 or 40 years of, of talking about why Johnny can't read and, and you know, all these all these uh, criticisms of the school system. Uh, but, you know, what what happened in 83 is you had a uh, Reagan's own. Reagan was was uh, very much opposed to the expansion of uh, the federal role in, in education, but his own uh, education secretary, this guy named Terrell Bell, who came out of the really the education reform movement, but he was a Republican, right? He had been an education administrator and he was like part of this like milieu in the seventies talking about how problematic the schools were in the context of a democratic party that's moving away from social democracy, 
uh, at the same time that you've got, remember, 1983, you've got a significant recession, right? That's the Reagan. You've got uh, unemployment and fleet starting lessened, but at the expense of lots of people going out of work. Uh, a decade after which companies are moving uh, jobs either to the south or overseas where they've got non-union labor forces, right? They're disinvesting. And unlike Germany, right, where in Germany you've got recommitment to an industrial policy, that's not happening in the United States, right? So what happens is you kind of bring together these people criticizing the schools with the, with the, um, you know, the political economic turmoil that's happening. And what comes out of this, stud, this thing that Bell puts together, in part to undercut the things that Reagan was going to do to federal support for education, they come out with this uh, report that says, Hey, look, you know, look at the, all of the economic turmoil that the United States is facing. It's because the schools are no longer competing with countries like Japan and Korea, you know, where they're, you know, developing these new industries and, and, you know, things are going really well for them. Well, it ignores the fact that like those countries had taken affirmative steps to like invest in their own industries, right? And the yes. United States hadn't done that. But, uh, so, so what the, what a nation at risk really does is it kind of, sucks up all these trends that were already in place and and catapults them puts them on this to this sort of national platform that that forces really everybody to confront it some unions like the national education association are like no like this is bs others though like the aft albert shank yeah we should probably embrace some of these calls here because this is how we're going to avert funding cuts so it was the money i think partially yeah what was the you know what's the remedy here that that a nation at risk, you know, well, here's proposed. what's interesting about it, right? All those dynamics about blaming teachers, that wasn't really there in 1980. Right. Actually, what a nation at risk called for were things like higher teacher salaries. Now, that, that came with, like, accountability, right? The idea was we've got to, you know, make teachers more accountable, maybe pay them market rates. It's anti-teacher union, right? But the point is, is that it wasn't like we got to, like, fire every teacher and, you know, create charter schools it was more like there needs to be more investment in education but but more sort of shifting toward accountability and and um, connecting learning outcomes to the future job prospects of workers and how did we get from there which took a more holistic approach to the education system writ large to improving curriculum and stem and so on to the mess of no child left behind the the flood of testing as as a regimen that every child lives with uh, now yeah that's a great question so because the education myth continues to grow in stature right like a nation at risk one of the things i should have said that's important about it that i'll say now is that that signified that um the future of the Republican Party was going to be sort of a commitment to education reform too, right? A growing acceptance uh, from both Republicans and Democrats of this idea that education is the answer, investment in human capital is the answer to the economic and social inequality that existed at the time. So Republicans and Democrats start trying to outdo each other in terms of who's the ed better education reformers. Clinton, his entire career as governor of Arkansas is tied to um, you know this idea that like I'm going to hold teachers accountable, you know, and and reform the system, and then he, you know right through his his heading up the being a, or being a, a big part of the Democratic Governors Association and the Democratic Leadership Council, but then Republicans get in the act too, right? 
George H.W. Bush is like, I want to be the educator, right? <laughs> convened summit on education Charlottesville in 1989. Uh, and part of that was him trying to distance himself from Reagan. And, and what better way to do that than using the education system, this thing that like is seen as a system that's, to use a term that his son would employ, more compassionate than some of the other institutions, right? So 92, in the election of 1992, it's the first election where there's an entire political debate actually in both um, primaries, oh, just over education, right? Because it's it's grown to be that important. And so again, you've got Democrats and Republicans trying to kind of outdo each other. And that leads us to greater calls for accountability. We got to hold teachers accountable because if everybody believes in this, in this education myth that education is the answer, then if things aren't actually getting better for working people, then somebody's got to be to blame, right? And that must be teachers. Over the 90s, I think there's a lot of work done to basically say like, all right, we've got to hold teachers accountable for the learning outcomes of their students. And that's how you get no child, which, which there's, folks probably remember that there's virtually no dissent in Congress over no child left behind. Bernie Sanders voted against it, for example, in the House. Uh, Paul Wellstone from Minnesota was making really good arguments against it in the Senate. But it, it, it you know, it had wide. It was Kennedy and Bush, wasn't it? Yeah. Ted Kennedy yeah, and Bush. Yeah. The, 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 the kind of bipartisans that like we wouldn't even think could happen over anything right now. What was the remedy from No Child Left Behind? So now we're going to test every um, five days, five days every out of every year, and the, the whole concept of the failing school. Yeah, right. it's, it, this is it, this is great to compare this to a nation at risk. I've never had anybody ask this question exactly this way. It's really good. So the remedy under No Child Left Behind was a, a set of escalating, well, first of all, testing, right? Every state had to test students um, in uh, f fifth and eighth grade. Uh, is it fifth, fourth? It doesn't matter, but basically <laughs> elementary and middle school. And, and um, but, the, but this, the states could come up with their own testing, right? Because we've got this federalist system, but the, whatever, however their tests were set up, they had to, they had to show what was called adequate yearly progress that student test scores were going up in math and reading by a certain percentage every year, and that had to be disaggregated by different groups, so uh, racial groups, special education. And um, to the point where by 10 years into the future, 2011, I think it was, every single student had to be proficient. I mean, think about that. There, there's virtually no way that could happen. And if, and if, state, and if um, school districts, schools were not making what was called adequate, that adequate yearly progress, escalating series of punishments, right, right? Ranging from, okay, first you're gonna have to, to provide extra tutoring that comes from outside of the school, you're gonna have to pay for that. Uh, but then escalating to, you've gotta fire half of your teachers, uh, escalating to- Well, they fired principals and or, or, or shut or down a school or shut down the school and reconstitute it as a charter school. So it was like, you know, forget about what uh, your students might be experiencing. If you can't figure out how to get them uh, improving on these test scores, you're going to be punished. And that really became the the actual outcome. Test proficiency. Yeah, and it led to a and it led to a bunch of unintended consequences like states like I think it was Massachusetts that had more stringent tests. They weren't, they weren't showing the kind of progress they needed and they were having schools punished, whereas like states that had easier tests, right, were showing this progress, but were the education outcomes better? Probably not, right? Um, it also led to a lot of, 
folks listening to this probably remember some of the like really high profile cheating where people, you know, you had administrators literally like doctoring test scores because they're like, this is, you know, the, about the future of what's going to happen to our school. And so they, they did things that in many cases, I think some of them actually went to so completely unintended consequences, right? That was an intended consequence from the people who cheat, but not 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 what I think No Child Left Behind, the, the legislators were thinking. Yeah, I mean, I think that nobody really thinks, how is this really going to play out in the real world where people are faced with job loss or the school being shut down or loss of pay or on the other side, getting big pay bumps if I show tremendous success. And now we're sort of in the world where where students are the dysfunctional ones. You know, students are dysfunctional as a result of the pandemic. Students are dysfunctional due to social media. Any number of ails that plague us. So I don't know how the educational system or, or, or what the policymakers, how they're going to approach that as a way of, of trying to address what really is the more fundamental problems that you mentioned as as remedied by social democracy, which is the ever more extreme inequality in the country. How do they get from you're doing TikTok too much to why why African Americans have half the income of whites? Um, yeah. You know, it's it's quite a leap. Right. Well, and, and you and you have to remember, too, that, you know, you have uh, politicians, especially on the right, that so much of this conversation about, um, you know, uh, so-called culture war issues like teaching about race, gender, sexuality, those kinds of things, you know, calling everybody a Marxist. Right. These are these are designed to suppress those conversations. And so we have a we have a state senator. He's my state senator. Um, uh who no sorry state representative okay not my state representative but up up this way um who just uh uh authored a bill that would ban tiktok uh and and ban um actually all social media for kids after a certain hour every night right and it's like totally unenforceable and this is the this is the party of civil liberties rights that's pushing for you know all these things are meant to distract us from these like real fundamental problems right they're they're by design right there's a there's a reason that republicans like desantis are pushing for the things that they're pushing for because they actually have nothing that's going to improve the working the, the lives of working people right nothing uh other than just to you know give them you know red give them red meat and, and sow these divisions so I think, you know, the, the thing that I find interesting are the, the kind of grassroots groups that are that are pushing for us to rethink these things. Right. And, and one of those groups in this country are teacher unions, right? specifically unions in places like Chicago and Los Angeles, you know, that are saying, um, no, actually what students need to succeed are uh, that, you know, they need to have social workers and nurses food. Uh, and immigration or food. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, um, uh, you know, there, there are legislators across this country, I believe Minnesota just did this, that have effectively extended the, the free lunch program uh, for all students in the public schools. So these things, I think, are happening. They're, they're happening from community, you know, community groups like and, and teacher unions. They're happening at the state level. And, and, I, and I, one of the things I really think that is happening is there is becoming a greater push. This is why there's so much resistance on the right is there is, is becoming a growing, a growing push from uh, lots of people in this country 
to rekindle social democracy, to, to push for social and economic rights. It's why all those baristas at Starbucks are organizing right now, because they realize, you know, that what they've been sold in, in terms of this education myth isn't going to actually help them. What's going to help them is having a union and being able to, to, to bargain for the things that they need. So I think that's that's why I'm really hopeful it, and, and why, you know, it, it is frustrating to see all of this kind of turmoil about education. And it's why we got to get it right, like what education means and how it fits into all of these other, you know, bigger picture things that we need. Yet the um, I mean, the, the unions that you mentioned or, you know, or the cities that you mentioned where these unions exist are two of the largest cities in the country where the especially in Los Angeles, where you have this tremendous uh, divide between the haves and haves nots um, there, um, where, you know, in the midst of fabulous wealth, which is present everywhere in the city, you have students who, you know, as I said, can't come to school hungry and what, you know, what the all the implications of that are. I read something about a new effort in Madison at um, one of the major high schools, East High School, where now the the culinary department of the school now is involved with feeding students. I mean, is above and beyond what the cafeteria does and also providing, uh, making food to take home much more uh, accessible. I mean, that is sort of the last, that's sort of the last gasp. I mean, when you're down to having to find ways to feed students through charity, through um, food banks or whatever, um, as a way of making education possible in some fashion, then we've given up on some of the more systemic kinds of, of answers here that, you know, I mean, we just had this, you know, of course, yesterday where, boy, let's, Let's cut back on, you know, food stamps. Now, I yeah. uh, did a, a series of programs on, you know, what happened to food stamps in the last few months. And it's, you know, it was already a catastrophe for many people. And now, of course, that's getting worse. And, you know, how what the reverberation of that is, you know, when I interviewed people and seeing the kids in the cars who were in, waiting for their food allotment how these kids are going to function in the classroom, not just because they are hungry, but because they're thinking about hunger. They're thinking about food. They're worried about it. Uh, and, you know, even at a school like UWGB, you probably come across that. Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, you know, and, and um, it's a little bit of an older book now. I think it came out in 2015 or something like that. But uh, Sarah Goldrick Rabb, sociologist. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that was really eye-opening to me, I, I had anecdotal evidence of that, but in the research she did for this book called Paying the Price um, a few years ago, it was something like 20 or 25 percent of community college students deal with uh, food insecurity. Um, and, you know, we've got a, we've got a, a, a very, um, we put a lot of work on this campus uh, to building a, 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 a campus pantry that students can get food at. And um, actually, my union just donated AFT just donated um, five thousand dollars to this to this pantry last year. I was very proud of that. The kind of thing where it's like, yeah, like that should be something that's there systemically, not something that we kind of just have to rely on the goodness of 
great people on our campus to kind of organize. You know, the person who runs our our, our campus pantry, she actually does this. Her name's Stacy Christian. She's awesome. She actually does this without like it can't be part of her like normal workload, right? Because it's something she does that's extra, and that's kind of what we have to kind of deal with. So, you know, we have a situation. I was looking at uh, the news list. Uh, in addition to the you know engineering department going down, one thing that's going up is a massive computer science and digital information building. Um, and computer science is the number one major in the United States. Digital information and digital anal data analytics is the fastest growing major. You know, my thought was, you know, at, while I'm reading this and simultaneously thinking about um, the education myth, your book, um, is that, wow, we're going to build the building, we're going to be graduating, not a thousand, but we're going to be graduating 3,000 and 4,000 people every year, and where are they going to go? I mean, at the same time that, you know, we have this big downturn in the industry, how, edu how higher education sort of finds out five years <laughs> too late about what we need and you just can't have just-in-time higher education right well a, a couple of things i mean you know first of all it's important to recognize something and, and i have a good friend at uw river falls who has a book coming out and that you're going to want to interview october <laughs> um his name's neil kraus and he says all the time higher education does not control the labor market right and it's a, it's a very simple thing to say but it's important for us to recognize that like we can graduate who we graduate, but we don't have any control over what jobs that are available for them. So that's number one. Number two, think about that, that point you made earlier, which was, which was really important about how economists don't understand how anything actually works, right? They make these assumptions, not all economists, there's some good, but for the most part, uh, they make these assumptions about how human behavior works and, and, and how people respond to incentives, et cetera. Well, think about how human capital works, right? The idea is, that you develop your own human capital by having the presence, not just to figure out like, you know, to, a set of things that you can do well, but what demand there is gonna be in the labor market. And you've gotta figure that out, not just now, but what that demand is gonna look like 10 years from now. How can any person, economists can't even do, do that. that. Right. How are we gonna mm -hmm. expect a college graduate to be equipped to do that? Yeah, or how do you expect so, someone who's a high school senior who has to pick a major? Exactly, so it's like, so, so again, it's, it's like this has all been set up by design, right? And, and human capital is, is, a, is a concept that is so deeply problematic that, you know, we should all be rejected. We do. <laughs> We've been talking to uh, John Shelton, who's a professor at UWGB Green Bay. Um, and John is um, the author of The Education Myth, How Human Capital Trumps Social Democracy, which came out this year. Uh, it's published by uh, Cornell University Press. He's also the author of Teacher's Strike, and which there's uh, sort of a long subtitle to that teacher strike public public education and the making of a new american political order good one okay and uh, uh john is also the vice president of higher education of uh wisconsin's chapter would we call it chapter of american federation of teachers or division uh, 
the state federation. State federation. Yeah, it used to be called the Wisconsin Federation of Teachers, but I think they made them uh, change the name. Yeah, we've been going through really what the state of education is and how that really interacts with um, with the social policy that um, sort of makes the problem of education appear to be a failure and sort of a self-blaming <laughs> uh, process over and over again. Thinking about your comment that um, by Krauss that education is not responsible for the labor market. And um, I remember years ago when I was a graduate student here, so this was, you know, decades ago, uh, my one of my labor economist teachers uh, said to me that, what we ought to do now is, if I ran this place, meaning UW-Madison, I would take um, a lock and chain and chain up the, the doors of the School of Education, and I would keep it locked up for the next five years. Because that's the last thing we need now is, if we were being honest with people, is to train them to be uh, teachers. And then, of course, that was a time when there was this big surplus of teachers, and of course now we're in the trough. And um, the, the question isn't really how do we get that right? As I, what I'm getting from your book is we never get it right. Schools cannot anticipate, people cannot anticipate, schools cannot anticipate decade in advance what it is, but what we need to do is have society ready to address the problems of when we don't get it right. That there's always going to be uh, systemic failure here. Yeah, I think the, the biggest thing I would say in general is the market doesn't work out well a lot of the time, right? yeah. maybe most of the time. And, and, and so, you know, what we should be doing, and you mentioned a lot of those other countries, you know, like we should have an industrial policy in this country that should that should be connected to not just here's what corporate, you know, these are the kinds of jobs that we want to create, right. Um, and, and I think you know, I think there's a way. I'm not. I'm not calling for a command economy or anything like that. But I, but I think there is a way to kind of privilege those kinds of those kinds of things, right? And and to think about again some of the social needs that we have, like universal health care, right? Like if and and universal childcare. Those are things that we know people need. And there's also a way to you know I think when you when you uh, say these are services that we need in this country and things that we need to invest in that actually helps you to kind of project what kind of jobs might be necessary, right? Because if you know we're going to, we need to build this many childcare services, and we're not going to rely on private profit to make them happen, then, you know, it, in terms of an education problem, right, you can say, well, these are the, these are the number of people that we want to bring in and, and how we're going to train them, and you can plan for that more. But, but yeah, like, I, I don't think we should stop saying, like, hey, these are, these are things that we need. We need people to do them. We shouldn't just say, like, hey, we can never get that right. But you're absolutely right. Like, we have to start with what are the things that we need as a society? How do we ensure that every single person has economic security and health care and all the other things that we know they need to have a good life in this kind of economy? And then we, and then, and then we think about how education connects to that, right? right. That's what we have to be doing. Right. Well, thank you, John. Uh, this has been a, a great conversation. I've enjoyed our our conversation and discussion, and I hope uh, listeners have uh, gotten a lot out of it as well. Again, I've uh, been talking to uh, John Shelton, who's the author of The Education Myth. <laughs>
How Human Capital Trumps Social Democracy by Cornell University Press. So uh, look for it. Um, it's, it's really a great read. Thanks very much for the book and for taking the time. Yeah, thanks so much, David. Thanks to all your listeners. Really appreciate the conversation. It's been a lot of fun.